Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes Robbie Dupree. For many artists who follow their heart's desire, the road that leads to the promised land of musical success can be long and winding. Looking back on the road that Robbie Dupree has traveled, he's found that he's been one of the lucky ones. From his tough beginnings in Brooklyn, to his top ten hits, Hot Rod Hearts and Steal Away, who, by the way, earned him a Grammy nomination in the early 80s for Best New Artist, you'll find that Robbie's career has been a wonderful journey that has crossed paths with timely opportunities. His newly released CD, entitled Time and Tide, is a product of his high standards in writing, engineering, and musicianship. He has also surrounded himself with musicians who he's worked with over the past years. David Sanctius, Larry Hoppin, Leslie Smith, Rick Tudikoff, and Peter Bonetta. All excellent musicians in their own right. Robbie Dupree has definitely reached his promised land, creating music on his terms. Inside Music Cast welcomes Robbie Dupree. Hey, Robbie, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Rick. Thanks yeah, for having thank, me. Thank you. Hey, listen, uh, this is Eddie here, and I want to, first of all, Robbie, uh, congratulate you on your new release, the 2008 uh, release called Time and Tide. So congratulations on that. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, I really must admit that, you know, uh, I, I didn't really have any expectations of what I was going to hear when, when you first sent me the CD, and uh, but... Uh, with all honesty, um, you know, when I heard the first track wrapped around your finger, when that started, I, mean, I, I just really had high hopes and I knew that that was going to deliver. It was over four minutes long and, I mean, this track, it delivered great lyrics, bass line, guitar solo, and it just had a really nice, deep groove. So, you know how you sort of listen to an album and the first few bars tells you, oh yeah, this, this got a great feel, you know? <laughs> right, I do know and I, I wanted to try to make that kind of a record. Yeah. Tell us about, uh, you know, when you started working on this, uh, the, the new album. How long had uh, this been uh, in the making? Well, the way I write is, is very, um, would be very confusing to most people. But what happens is all the music gets written first, uh-huh. and I usually start um, putting, putting tracks together, you know, just ideas, bass parts, and mm-hmm. program drums, and, and, um, and, you know, a typical sense of, like, getting an attitude. And then I work a lot with David Sanctius, and so David yeah. comes over, and together we refine the music. And then when the music is all done um, on each song, which, which can take any amount of time, you know, um, it's time to go into the studio. And even though I may only have a melody, which yeah. is mostly the case, or a title, which is also the case, we go in and track, and I just sort of sing phonetics to everybody, and they play live to that. And then they leave it with me, and they split. And then, however long it takes me to write all the lyrics and put the whole thing together, it's sort of like back crafting instead mm, of having it all like a song, like that's poetry, you know. And my yeah. and my job is to not make it feel like that at the end, not to feel like the words were forced into the music in some way, but to feel like they were a part of the uh, initial uh, concept. Would you say that your words and the way you know you, you explained working sort of backwards? Would you say that you have uh, you utilize words as uh, percussive in any aspect or not really? It would depend. Not, I don't think that is so much it. I think what happens is for me is that I'm not a prolific poet. Okay. I'm not somebody who sits around and has notebooks full of lyrics and you know and, and approaches things in that way. What happens is I um, as the music evolves, an atmosphere is created. Mm-hmm. And each step along the way, a title comes to mind, you know, from the music, and it's done as almost as if it was like an instrumental record. And then my craft is to let that attitude and that title and the and the vibe that the music has created um, dictate to me that the the, uh, the theme, you mm-hmm. know, the script is, is 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 kind of written by the by the title or by the feel of the music. And, and the important thing is to marry the lyrical content to the music in the right way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's how I go about it. Yeah, you know, I wanted to ask you about the uh, the sound that you were trying to, you know, achieve on this album. You know, anyone who listens to this this album will hear the whole album just sounds very rich and, you know, it has a real fat sound to it and it's, it's just clean. Talk to us about how you recorded this project. Okay, the recording was very simple. As I said, I um, 
um, I, I had these fragments. They really weren't demos, like, from top to bottom, but mm-hmm. they were fragments, like a chorus section and an intro and stuff, and I pieced them together mm-hmm. and mailed them to everybody okay. and just told them to listen to them. And then when we came together to make the record, I, had, um, I was budgeted for um, five days in the studio to record the album. Okay. And, um, and what happened was we came in and rehearsed the tracks a, a little bit, mm-hmm. and be- while they were still fresh, we just recorded them onto analog two-inch tape. Okay. And then um, transferred that into Pro Tools and okay. moved on to the next song. And we averaged, you know... Um, we didn't do long days, but we averaged, you know, uh, two songs a day, I guess, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and we actually finished a half day early. Um, we got the ninth track. And we, my idea all along was just to to do it the old-fashioned way, that just the band is a great band, they're wonderful players, sure. and, and the engineer for the tracking was Tom Mark, and he's a great engineer. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and just let them do their thing. You know, I don't micromanage. Like, I take a lot of time in presenting the stuff to everybody, and I have a kind of a, an overview of it. But I don't, I don't sit there and tell people what to play. I just suggest from my demo a kind of a groove and a kind of an atmosphere, and then sure. they do it. Sure. So I just think it's really the natural sound of the instruments on analog tape. Yeah. And there's nothing really special. There's a lot of air, mm-hmm. and, there's, and there's no tricks or gimmicks. You know, it was... We're all set up in the same room, and there wasn't even a whole lot of separation. I mean, frankly, we were just in yeah. a big room together. Yeah, oh, that, it's kind of refreshing to hear that you cut it on tape. I mean, I just—I'm an engineer as well, and of course, I know Pro, you are. Yeah, Pro Tools is my platform, and and uh, and I love it, you know. But but I still, you know, when I go back and listen to an album, uh, you know, that was mastered and recorded and mastered, you know, twenty, thirty years ago, that you knew it was cut, you know, on analog. Maybe it had some digital. It passed through a digital sequence at some point. It's just, I don't know, it's just, I just hear the difference. I, you know, a lot of people debate that, mm-hmm. but I, I do. I hear a difference in the way, you know, an analog recording sounds as opposed to something digital. And I, I think a lot, a lot of that has to do with mastering, too. You know, they're squeezing the life out of music these days. I know. Well, see, this is, this is really like the long and the short of it. I paid for this record out of my own pocket, so there really wasn't a lot of money, extra money. So we, right. we used only one reel of tape. Mm-hmm. Um, because tape is so expensive. Oh, it is. That was just an extra problem. Mm -hmm. So what happened was, once we made the decision that we had to take, and that was usually either one, two, or three, we dumped it into Pro Tools and rolled to the top of the tape again and then Mm -hmm. did the next song. Ah, I see. see. So we only used the tape (laughs) as a a system to go through. Right. And, um, And I knew that the rest of it would wind up on Pro Tools, not by choice necessarily, but because that studio that I worked in, which is called the Clubhouse in mm-hmm. Rhinebeck, New York, which is a just a beautiful, beautiful studio with accommodations, and you know my band lives everywhere in L.A. and Nashville and uh-huh. Orlando, Florida. So when we come together, it's important that we can all stay together. You know. Yeah. So that was that's a that's a perfect place. And yeah. Paul Antonell, who's the owner, and he um, he hooked it up for us in a beautiful way. And Tom Mark brought his own mics, and Tom is an old school guy with. Great mics, matched pairs of 87s, okay. and C12, and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Oh, yeah. So he has the stuff, you know. Well, we, we were going to ask you about the mics that you used. On well, the- you know, it's not something that I get deep into myself, mm-hmm. you know. Like, I always leave everything up to the people that do what they do. Yeah. But I, I do know that there were beautiful Neumanns, and like I said, there was a C12 involved. Those and there right. was, you know, some just some great stuff that Tom has collected over the years. Mm-hmm. So there was some great vintage and some great new stuff yeah. that the clubhouse had. But again, it wasn't like a tricks record. You know, we just set it up in a certain way and the drums were very exposed, you know, and and um and it was just a it was just a cool way to do it and it was just the way we used to do it. Right. You know? And um and I kind of have been doing it that way for a long time. You know, that that's that's the way I've been tracking. Um this one just was very conducive because I used my my touring band did did everything yeah. so there's a great continuity about that when it isn't like even though the players can be great on records I've used like John Robinson on a certain amount of tracks mm-hmm. or I've used Steve Gadd on a certain amount of tracks yeah. or I've used you know different people and what happens is there's something that I didn't want about that on this record there's something that I wanted this record to just feel like a whole idea 
you know, yeah. from, from start to finish. And I think it's seamless in that way, you know, that it feels like one vibe, you know. Mm, I do too. I, I, I think that as well. I mean, I got that from listening to it from top and to bottom. And what we did was, the end result was that we put it all on Pro Tools. I cut vocals um, with, a, with a female engineer named Julie Last, who's been around for a long time, uh-huh. who's great. She had a smaller studio. I did all the vocals on Pro Tools, mm-hmm. and um, and then when we were all done, uh, brought everything back to the clubhouse, and an engineer named John Holbrook, a friend for many many years, he mixed it, and we mi- and we uh, mixed it down to quarter inch. Okay. And that's how we he, we did it. Then I brought the quarter inch to Greg Calby in New York at Sterling, mm-hmm. and Greg mastered it. And that was the process, you know. The, the writing took a long time because after the tracks, the tracks were done in February of '07, and I started to write the lyrics, and I didn't finish the lyrics until September. Wow. Yeah. But, I mean, I don't feel funny about that only because when I listen to it, I think about it in terms of I didn't take any shortcuts, mm-hmm. and I felt like I, I worked hard to make the songs have their poignancy about them or their romance about them or whatever and i didn't take any um shortcut rhyme right. schemes you know if you follow lyrics a lot you know that you can get away with a lot when you write oh, you know yeah. you, you know people don't listen that that carefully all the time you know and, and um and so most of this detail is really f- for a few people yeah. you know yeah but but it was it's legacy work for me so yeah. this is what i leave behind i think you, know? you made a great great point right there that it's it's legacy work i mean that's right well, you put your heart and soul. It's not just okay. Let's see if it gets, you know, it gets the top ten or whatever. Whatever you know, just it, this is a, a piece of art that you're creating here, and it's got to right. be right. And I know, I know, going into these things that I'm not going in the top ten. I mean, there's never any illusion about that. The point is that it's moments like this yeah. when you know you can talk to people who understand it, and that you can be on a podcast like this that's going to reach people who care mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. That's what it's all about. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm not. I, I've had my rarefied moments at the Grammys and stuff, you know, that's that's history now, you know, Mm. so now it's on a whole other level, and in some ways, it's kind of the most freeing and creative time to not have to play this record for anybody at a record company or anything. Yeah, Yeah. right. Like, I was lucky that I have several deals, I have a deal in Scandinavia and in Europe and in Japan, and pretty much... um, they just took the record as as is, and there was no no conversation about it at all. That's neat. You know, they just heard it and said, "That's you, and that's what we want, and um, let's do it." You mm-hmm. know. Hey, Robbie and Eddie, let's take a break real quick, and let's listen to one of the tracks from uh, Robbie's new album entitled "Time and Tide." This is the track called "Blue Monday." Yeah. 
And that was the track Blue Monday from the album Time and Tide and our guest, Robbie Dupree. Well, we want to talk a little more about uh, Time and Tide here in, in just a bit, but I, I want to take a trip back here. And, and I want want to see, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about the time you spent in uh, Brooklyn, New York, you know, the early days when you were playing guitar in a street corner. I mean, this was like in the late <laughs> 1960s, right? It was in the late 60s. What happened was when I came up, I mean, the long story, whatever they write, you know, I don't even know what where people get half the stuff from. But <laughs> it, it came up like this. There wasn't really any music in my family or anything. I lived in a hard-ass neighborhood called East New York in Brooklyn. Uh-huh. And... I was fortunate as a kid, about 12 years old, to be able to catch the very, very, very tail end of the a cappella guys that were still hanging out on the street corner singing. Uh-huh. I listened to them. They became my first personal experience with music other than what my parents listened to, you know. Mm, very cool. And, and that was anything from Sinatra to Glenn Miller, and I wasn't interested in any of that at all. Yeah. At the time, you know, later I learned an appreciation. Sure. But this acapella stuff that I heard on the street, it was, it was, I was too young to really be a part of it, but I, but I, um, but I, I certainly appreciated the uh, fact that they were sort of unschooled, untrained, and they were people that looked like me, you know, mm-hmm. but they were just older. And I kind of liked that about it. You know, it made it seem accessible instead of, you know, I had to take lessons and everything. So that was my really first inspiration was to hear that. And from time to time, I was able to squeeze my way in and let them, you know, the big guys let me sing a little bit with them. And they thought I had something, but it, I was a kid, so, you know, they'd kick my ass and send me home, you know. <laughs> but it was funny, and I, and, I, and I never forgot that. And as time went on, the whole explosion where everybody bought a guitar and a set of drums and everybody got in a band, you know, in the 60s. And I was just one more of those kids who... Um, met a kid who played guitar and he offered to teach me how to play a little bit and the two of us began playing in a in a little basement down in Brooklyn, you know, for 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 years really. And then um it evolved into a a bass player and a drummer and a little band idea and uh-huh. it wasn't really very good but it was soulful. You know, we were into it and we, we really felt like, you know, we were a part of this generation that was happening. Sure. And as I got better, I, I, I improved on, really, I excelled on harmonica. It turned out that that really became my instrument, and I kind of left guitar behind as just a secondary thing, and I concentrated on that. And that led us to a little bit harder core band. Mm-hmm. And eventually it led me to going on an audition with the bass player over in Manhattan, and it's where I met a very young Nile Rogers. Okay. And Nile and his cousin Tom Murray and John Arserno, the bass player, and mm-hmm. myself, we kind of hooked up right there and then and started this band, and it was kick-ass. It was called New World Rising. Right, right. And it was really, it was really uh, Niles' band, I mean, at the end of the day. He was the one who, you know, was the propeller for it, you know, and we were just, like, brand new in the city and kind of tourists, you know. And, um, and that band was like an interracial band at a very weird time, you know, sure. in New York, and uh-huh. half the gigs we'd play up in Harlem because Niall and his cousin would get them. They, by the way, I left out that we were like two guys from Brooklyn with, with uh, you know, leather jackets and stuff on, you know, and they were Black Panthers. <laughs> so it was this really, you know, tense, <laughs> beginning like to figure out where the shit was going to go you know right. and then we'd play in Harlem and they'd have to walk us to the train station and if we play <laughs> somewhere else we'd have to walk them right, you know, right. because <laughs> things were not the way they are today so it you, you, you know peace and love your you band know. was a model for society yeah it was crazy <laughs> really? so we so we had a time you know um, we had a good time and that band was the band that convinced me that that's what I wanted to do. Uh-huh. Before that, cool. it was a hobby, you know, it was a way to get meet chicks, you know, it was whatever it was. But yeah, yeah. that band, all of a sudden, was an inspiration. Niall was so good, yeah. and his cousin was so good, mm-hmm. that they just made you want to be good. Tell me about the, the band, uh, uh, New World Rising. What kind of music were you guys doing? Squared up blues and R&B. Okay. Straight yeah, up, like everybody, you know, it was funny. It was a period in time where people were playing a lot of, like, psychedelic stuff, and people were playing a lot of... Um, you know, 
hard rock and like that was that was really what was going on. Kids were like making believe they were English, <laughs> you know, and it was it was a it was a funny time, you know. But we were just hardcore, like we were all street kids, mm-hmm. and we gravitated. Like I didn't relate to Robert Plant, or it's not that I didn't think they were cool, you know. It's just that when I looked at music, I remembered looking at those guys on the corner, and I thought that it was important for me that I had to be able to like live within my own skin, you know. Yeah. So the kind of the kind of people that I could relate to were more like people like Paul Butterfield and people like that, right? Who they looked like me, you know. I don't mean the color. Yeah. I mean they weren't they were not like rock star looking they were just like guys you yeah. know with like a corduroy sports jacket and a, and a and a pair of sneakers you know yeah, and right. like that's what it was you know so for us we um i think all of us related to to um to music on that level that we wanted to play music that represented where we came from and what we were about you know yeah. and uh, and and that's that's kind of the story of that band yeah no pretense here this is what it is we look like this but we play like this yeah and, and, and like up, yeah. and like people gravitated to it i mean it didn't become like you know it didn't knock anybody off the off the map or anything sure. but people dug the band and they they and we dug the band and eventually we just ran out of opportunities you know yeah. like we just didn't have management and we were scuffling you know yeah. and we were all broke and i was the only one that had a car <laughs> and um you know it was it was kind of difficult times you right. know how long did that gig sort of uh last with with nile it's kind of a cloud to me but i i sort of think it was it was like probably like i'm gonna say a year and a half okay you know but it was a pivotal time for me and it was and and um and you know subsequently nile what he left for was to go to to music school mm-hmm. and he wanted to go to berkeley and he had ideas about you know doing more and right. he was and that that didn't surprise me right. but now was dirt poor gotcha. he was poorer than any of us and i mean he really lived in some hard hard times you know and so it was a great thing when he went to school yeah but i never saw him again until i picked up people magazine and i said that's chic yeah. i can't believe <laughs> exactly. that shit that's right. nile you know that's nile rogers <laughs> yeah, I, mean, right. I can't believe what i'm hearing you know and then i love that stuff like we are family oh, and yeah. all yeah. the stuff he did for his sister sledge and oh, sure. then it just broke out you know yeah and then it just became massive so i didn't see him in years and every once in a while somebody remember me to him or him to me and then um i did a benefit for jerry brown for president sometime yeah. in the 90s and um 94 or whatever it was, I can't even remember. And Niall was on the benefit, and um, he was playing with, of all people, the B-52s. Oh, my God. Yeah. It was like the B-52s, and the band was like Niall and Don Was, and yeah. and, and, uh, and I'm trying to think, and who was singing with them was, who's the um, who's the beautiful blonde girl? She's not a singer, but she was married to Alec Baldwin, and they have a big divorce and everything. Is that Michelle Pfeiffer? No, no, somebody like that. Anyway, I yeah. can't remember her name, but anyway, Same she time. was singing. So it was the first time I'd seen him <laughs> since the last time I'd seen him, and um, it was quite amazing, you know. And uh, he said to me, "What are you up to?" And I said, "Well, I'm doing this record called Walking on Water, and you know, I'm just pumping it out." And he said, "Come on down and bring a track and let me play on it. I want to play on it." So, um, so I, I brought the title track down yeah. to uh, to the studio where he was working and. Um, he did it, and it was just typical of the way Nile was. You know, <laughs> now he showed up at some gigs, and they just did a book about him, uh, maybe like a year and a half ago or something, yeah. um, called "Chic in the Politics of Disco," which uh-huh. is uh, which was done by a, a British writer, uh-huh. and um, they they interviewed me extensively about yeah. the early days and the crazy shit that went on back then, and um, so we've stayed like you know somewhat in touch over the years and uh, and he'll always be like sort of the inspiration i think yeah. for, for why i stayed in this you know sure it's very cool shortly after that around 72 you moved up state to new york uh, up to woodstock yeah right after that i hung out for a little while longer in new york but i didn't think i could duplicate where i was with them mm-hmm. there was something really cool about new world rising that i didn't feel it anymore like I, i didn't know if i had the energy to like try to drag something like that back together right right so by this time, things were happening in Woodstock, and not that's not where the festival was. You probably know that. Sure, right. The, fe- right. the festival was in Bethel. Mm-hmm. But Woodstock had Albert Grossman, Bearsville Records, Bearsville Studios. Right. 
it had like a whole musical community in a very small, picturesque town. And the first time I came here, I sort of thought, like, this is it. You know, this is like a place where I could do my thing, you know. And yeah. um, there were plenty of musicians, and that's where other bands began. You know, a series of other bands began with great players, p- people that had been working with anybody from Carol King to Van Morrison. And um, it's where I met the band Kraken hmm. and those guys, um, Peter Benetta, Leslie Smith, Arno Lucas, Rick Chudikoff, Brian Ray, all those guys were all in that band, and they'd all come in from Omaha to be in Woodstock. Explain a little bit of the the vibe that was happening. I mean, we talked about there's such a, a conglomerate of, of wonderful musicians that are, you know, gathering there and they're doing their thing, but what was the vibe? Was it uh, collaborative? The vibe was wrong. The vibe was, like, uh, unbelievable. You know, what it was was it was like a wide-open town. There were two cops. They didn't bother anybody. Yes. People sort of were very cool. There was no prob- no trouble in town or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And there were any little hole in the wall was a club. I mean, I'm talking about the first time I saw Buzzy Feeton was Buzzy Feeton was playing in a place that was called the Sled Hill Cafe, uh-huh. which was about three inches in water. <laughs> it always yes. rained. Literally? And, yeah, swear to God. And it rained, wow. and it was just like you stood, you had to take your shoes off. It was like so ridiculous. <laughs> Wait into the, the... Crazy. If it rained nuts. and they played, yeah. it was like that. And and these were the days of like Full Moon. I don't know if you know about that band. No, I don't. Okay, that band was all out of control. That was Gene Dinwiddie from Chicago. He played with uh, Paul Butterfield's band. Right. Buzzy Featon, Neil Larson, Freddie Breckmeyer, and Philip Wilson. And this thing was insane. I mean, this was, like, amazing. They did a record, one record for Douglas Records, and it became, like, um, a classic amongst, you know, like, if you want to call it West Coast music fans or whatever. Love this record. Anyway, that, that, and you know who Buzzy Feeton is? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, they just jumped off. They were playing there. Butterfield's band was playing. Jackie DeShannon was here. Really? Martha Velez had just made an album with Bob Marley. She was throwing it down. Wow. Kraken was here. Um, Janice, Bugsy Mom, Richard Bell, all those guys were here doing Full Tilt, you know, um, mm-hmm. the, the one that did, you know, her last album. I'm trying to think, you know, Todd Rundgren and, God, I, the band. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, right. like just, it, it's crazy, okay? Yeah. So everywhere you went, it was like that. Wow. Everywhere you went. And um, I, f- I found that it was like a dream, you know, it was just a place where... It sounds like a dream. Musicians were everywhere, <laughs> studios yeah. were popping up left and right, and yeah. this is all in a town that had about three or 4,000 people. Wow. So were the labels sniffing around as to what the heck was happening over there? Yeah, I mean, okay. labels did, but Albert really was the draw, okay. you know, yeah. like Albert's another guy out of Chicago who's a manager, he managed Bob Dylan, mm-hmm. he met, you know, he had an eye for discovery. He wasn't really a guy who ever had a hit record with a group that was obvious. Okay. Things that he was involved in, now it makes perfect sense, but That's if you were around in the day, you would have, if you looked at what was on the charts, I mean, a lot of people refute this to me, but... If you were looking at what was going on on the charts when he signed Bob Dylan, you wouldn't have signed Bob Dylan. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was like the Four Tops and mm-hmm. right. Miracles and, mm-hmm. you know, all all kinds of pop and Motown and all this kind of stuff. And yeah. here comes Bob Dylan. Right. Yeah. Now, today, okay, we know the history and we can all say what it is, but right. the reality is back back in the day, well, the first time I heard it, I thought, what is that? <laughs> yeah. You know, now uh-huh. all of a sudden... People started telling me about it, and I started listening to it, and it changed my life. You know, I mean, I mean, I really thought never thought of lyrics in that way before in my life. Mm-hmm. And um, but Albert saw that. Albert's the guy who brought Ravi Shankar to the Fillmore really? for the very first time in the West Coast. Wow. Albert Grossman signed the Butterfield Blues Band, seminal band that changed the face of the blues in America. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody copied that. Right. And the band, I mean, come on, these guys were like hillbillies, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They, they, who you wouldn't walk past and see Garth with his long beard and all these characters and then think of and writing songs about the Civil War and stuff. Right, you know? right. So, so he was like really, he was the walrus, you know? I mean, he really had a thing. 
So record company, the kind of things that came to Woodstock weren't pop things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The things that came to Woodstock were adventure. Right. You know, that's what made it so hip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it wasn't like a whole bunch of people with English haircuts, you know, trying to make a number one, you know. Right. So, so that's what made it interesting to me. And it was a school. It was a proving ground. And all the bands that I had in Woodstock and all of the different people that I played with all taught me something. Sure, you know, oh, definitely. All through those years, and the studio experience, and the and the engineer like Tom Marco, I met all that time ago, and you know that whole that whole uh, time was was rare and um, never to come back again. I mean, that was just totally special for like about ten years. Right. So, so at, at that stage, you know, um, I mean, I'm trying to put the pieces together here, but uh, I mean, at, at what stage did you absorb all that you could absorb there in at uh, at Woodstock in New York? And, and well, decided- I don't think I did. You know, I was a late bloomer. I mean, what I was trying, you got to remember that, like, what I was doing with this was I was trying to make a living. Yeah. Like I was doing this, like some people would go work in a gas station. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I didn't envision myself as. Uh, a celebrity or a pop star or a hit record. That was not where any of my music was going or any of my bands were right. going. Okay. You know, I was carrying like four horns and things, you know, making no money mm-hmm. just to like do a certain kind of a, an idea, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so I absorbed what I could absorb from all of the different players and I always tried to hire guys or convince guys to be in the band who were way above my standing. Okay. You know, and it really helped me to understand stuff by hanging out with them and seeing the way they soloed and the way they played and, you know, all of that. But I didn't really know a whole lot about making records. Mm-hmm. And what happened was when things came to an end in Woodstock for me in 1978, just a band I was it with, there were problems in it. We got a deal with Mercury Records and... um and there was just so many problems in the band that even after all of that time of trying, I just quit. Mm-hmm. And um, they went ahead and um, and did the record without me. And um, and I moved to California. And I and I pursued the guys from Kraken, the guys that I had yeah. met here in like '72 or '73. Right. I called them up, and I'd stayed in touch with them more or less. But they were recording in um, in Los Angeles by this time. They'd moved down from the Bay Area, and they welcomed me, and I said to them, you know what, I want, I've got these songs, and I want to write some more songs, and I want to do a demo, and I'd love you guys to like produce it and be the band and everything, and that's what happened. Yeah. And we made the demo and, um, and wrote some of the songs there for the demo, and then it was no overnight success. I'd been doing it now for like 15 or 16 years right. by the time I got a record deal, and that was Steal Away, and um, it was all very not the way it's supposed to be. It was yeah. like they'd shopped the tape around forever and nothing ever happened with it. And even though I was happy that I'd made the record I wanted to make with the demo that I wanted to make, yeah. um, I couldn't do it anymore. I didn't have any more money left or anything. I came back to Woodstock and then I went down to the city and I got a job loading trucks because uh, I didn't know what else to do, really. Wow. You know? And um, And so one day... After all of the millions of gigs and the showcases and mm-hmm. the demos and all of that stuff, one day, my drummer and producer, Peter Bonetta, his brother, Al Bonetta, was sitting at home in his apartment in L.A., and a guy named George Steele from Electra Records stopped in on his way to the airport. And the guy's father had died, and he had to kill a couple of hours before his plane to England. And they were hanging out, you know, probably imbibing, you know, and just being fr- friends. Sure. And all of a sudden, Al popped in this cassette. Now, Al had nothing to do with me or my career. Great. He just played this cassette. And George Steele said, what's that? And he said, oh, this is this guy, my brother, you know, blah, blah, blah. He said, well, I love that song. And it wasn't Steele, it was another song. He said, I love that song. Tell him to call Kenny Batiste, and we'll get him a record deal. Wow. <laughs> so they called, they woke me up and told me, and I thought, this is some kind of cruel joke. Yeah. yeah. And meanwhile, I'm like breaking my ass loading trucks, you know, and I, and I thought, the guy said, come on out, come out Tuesday. And I said, well, I'm going to bring my girlfriend, and I'm thinking, I'm not going to get the deal, but at least I'm going to get to L.A. for a week. You know? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so we flew out, and sure enough, they loved it, and um, and they uh, and they wanted to put it out, and 
and it was really miraculous, you know, and so I was drawn into it. Your question about absorbing, yeah, really, yeah. the long route was that I didn't start to learn until then about making records. I mean, I made some bunch of tapes and stuff, but I really wasn't aware of it. Um, the engineer that I worked with in Los Angeles named Gary, Gary Brandt uh-huh. at Alpha Studios, um, and, and, and Rick and Peter and, and, the, and those guys, yeah. they taught me everything. And um, that's how I that's how I absorbed you wow. know from really being in the studio and making the first record and the second record and the record the first record in Spanish and the halfway through the third record before they dropped me and um, all of that stuff so I I got a crash course you know yeah right amazing well you, I, it was a huge success for you that first album I mean I think you were also nominated for a Grammy uh, yeah for, yeah that for was best a big new artist. Year. Yeah. yeah, the whole thing was out of control. I, mean, yeah. I couldn't even believe it. You know? <laughs> what it a really great was, experience. It really though. was funny. And that, you know, that was that glory time and all of that stuff. But I'm going to be real honest with you. The truth of the matter is, is that it's the second career that's been the one that's been the most relaxed. Yeah. Because I came into it with all of this experience. Yeah. And I came into it with all of these friends and all of these musical experiences that mm-hmm. I've had, you know, to bring to it. And and um, it's really been um, much more fun. I mean, that was like a lot of money, and that sure. was a lot of, you know, fame and all of the stuff that goes with that. And it's the reason why I'm still here. Uh-huh. But But in terms of really, like, the best time has been the second half. Mm-hmm. It's, isn't it amazing how 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 timing is everything? I mean, all this sweat equity that you put in there—fifteen years, you say—of getting to where you were until you turned around and came back, and and it just took this one guy with, uh, you know, in whatever his state of life was, George Steele. Right. You know, he listens to it, and all of a sudden, the world changes there for a little while. Isn't that amazing? For me, the world changed for me forever. It changed for my parents who were sick and poor, and it changed. You know, it, it gave me an opportunity to bring them to Woodstock. Mm-hmm. It gave, you know, to buy my father his first new car. Yeah, you yeah. know, it, I mean, it was like a, the ramifications of that success were, you know, they still reverberate to this day. Sure. I mean, every time I get a fan mail on my website, you know, it's interesting to just go and look at it because not for the ego of it, but for the fact that from South Africa to Brazil to Scandinavia, to Japan, the people that write in always have this same theme that somehow this song is a part of, a very special part of their life, like yeah. so many songs are, but sure. I mean, mine is lucky enough to be one of them, you know, yeah. so it never stops being uh, special, yeah. you know, it's just that I wouldn't, I wouldn't run away from that part of my career, all I mean is that there was a lot of pressure, you know, sure. there was a lot of pressure, you know, like record company pressure. And once you have hits and once you have Grammy, they want and more. once you have that stuff, the machine is like ch- chomping you apart, you know, yeah. to do it, to do it again. And um, that wasn't the way I was really set up ever since the beginning. It really wasn't the way I was set up, you know. Yeah. So after it did what it did for me, I had some dark years where nothing was happening. And then came about 1980. Or 1987, and I met a guy named Bob Jenniker, and he turned me on to the concept that, like, forget about where you're not happening. What you need to do is go to where you are happening. Mm-hmm. And Japan is very happening for you. You sold 95,000 records in Japan. You need to go 95,000 albums. So you need to like do this and that. And he hooked me up, and I started to then make records for Japanese labels, and that led to me learning about licensing and me learning about production and producing other people's records for Japan. And then that led to Europe and Scandinavia and, um, and this whole new career that I've been able to been so fortunate to be able to build has been based on the opportunities that Bob opened. So there's always somebody there who's taken me up another notch. You know, it hasn't been me. It's been, there's always been somebody that's, been there like just when you're ready to go under <laughs> yeah. they come along you know yeah. like al pacino said in uh, the godfather they pulled me back <laughs> you know <laughs> at the right time <laughs> exactly well i was you know this is kind of an interesting question but you know comparing your your latest release time and tide uh, to your first uh, 1980 release that of course had steal away and hot rod hearts 
Um, you know, there's I, Eddie and I kind of noticed a you know distinct maturity or distinct difference in, in style, lyrics, and you know, in, in music. And obviously, it's, it was 25 plus years ago or whatever. But how has your approach to music changed throughout life? I mean, how, how have you approached it? And, you know, or well, how I have should you ask you. I don't want to answer it with a question, but I mean. Are you guys hip to any of the music that's gone on along the way between there? I've heard bits and pieces of some of uh, tracks okay, well, from see, each the of your albums. Is you'd have to know, you'd have to know the the um, the evolution. You know, mm-hmm. the albums like from Street Corner Heroes and right. then to Carried Away, mm-hmm. and then to Walking on Water and Smoke and Mirrors, yeah, and Vintage and Vintage, no, yeah, and, exactly. and 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 then to um, like. Um, the David David Sanctions and Robbie record yeah, and right. you know things like that. There's an evolution about it. It didn't go from Steal Away to Time and Tide. Right, right, of course. And so those steps. Um, what it, what it really is is this is closer to to where I started. Steal Away and all of those things were a concerted effort to make pop music. Mm-hmm. I meant it, and it was fun and everything. But we were making records. We were making singles. We were we were. We were on a major label, and we were doing the thing that you do when you're there. Right. What's happened subsequently, after that long break and getting a handle on the fact that, you know, the big labels weren't ever going to sign me again, and it was like that kind of a thing, you know, um, I came back to the, to the roots of the music, you know, to, like, great musicians, lots of feeling, lots of heart, and songs that were true to me. And they weren't. There aren't any like pop hits or anything like that. I haven't done any of that kind of thing. You know, they're all very. Right. I guess my music is darker than that in the first place, and it has um, evolved that way. You know, and so Time and Tide is really the closest thing to what I always wanted on the records that inspired me as a young musician. Mm-hmm. You know, when I listened to like. Les McCann and Eddie Harris, you know, Marvin Gaye, you know, like things like that. It's not like this record copies those things. It's just that I, I envisioned being in the in the studio with a mature band yeah, right. playing mature songs and like doing something that I could really be proud of. And right. I think that that's how the evolution occurred. You know, right. that's what that's where it is today. I'm too old to write songs about girls and cars, you know, and like, you know, they'll lock me up, you know. Just, like, oh, my album cover will be me with a raincoat over my head coming out of a police station. You know? so, um, so, you know, these are appropriate for somebody who's been around like me. That's what the topics are about. They're about war, they're about love, they're about peace, they're about mm-hmm. jive in L.A., they're about subjects that I know about, you know. And um, and I've been a part of that stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, talking a little bit about your collaborations, your your writing collaborations, you've worked with for years with uh, with Bill Bill Abani, right? And who's an excellent keyboardist composer in his own right. And mm-hmm. in fact, uh, you guys just recently uh, toured Europe in '06 with Bill and uh, and uh, Japan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How, how does uh, your relationship with Bill? Uh, how does that factor into your music as a collaborator? Well, you know what, Bill was seminal. To me, as a writer, I mean, I think out of all the people that I learned about writing from, it would be Bill that I would say. Mm-hmm. And there were people that inspired me musically, but as a songwriter, it would clearly be Bill, yeah. um, hands down. Yeah. And um, and and um, Hot Rod Hearts was his composition, although in the studio I was able to bring certain aspects to that that were not there because the song was barely finished when we recorded it, and um, and it became that became our first sort of collaboration like my voice with his songs and that ended up with writing bunches of songs together and also me producing his record the right direction in um i don't know 91 and um we've had kind of a tumultuous relationship i mean through the years you know bill is his own special kind of a guy you know he's eccentric and a great talent and stuff yeah so once in a while we take a break (laughs) you know for a period (laughs) of time but but we always hook back up again and i called him Back in 06, I guess it was like, you know, I don't remember if it was the fall, I think, or something like that. And I called him and said, listen, here's my idea. I want to go to um, Tokyo and Paris and um, and do this thing. And I know you have, he hadn't performed in, I don't know, 15 years or something, and he hadn't made a record since the one I made with him. Hmm. And I said, I'd, I'd love it if you'd, if, you'd, if you'd come and be a featured guest on it. So he did, and we had a great time, and... Um, 
we did 10 shows in Tokyo and two shows in Paris and wow. uh, and they were awesome you know and, and and fans loved Bill and I'm happy to say that he was inspired by that whole thing hmm. to do a new album and he's coming here September 9th and 10th when I'm finished with my shows and I'm going to sing and play on a on a number of his tracks that he's about 90% done with the album. Yeah. So that's hip, you know, so the vibe has always been good and I've always learned I've learned a lot more from Bill than I've taught him, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I was on on a site recently and I tell you his uh the project that's in development it's uh, it's sounding beautiful. Yep. It's really going to be great. Yeah. You know, not only, not only did you uh, tour with Bill, but also with your band that plays on the album. So I want to do something. I'll mention the band member, or, you know, a name of a band member. Tell me a little bit about them, their contributions or, or whatever you wish about the, the band member. But, of course, the first one is one of my favorite keyboard players, and that's David Sanchez. Well, David, David Sanchez and, and I have been friends for probably 25 years. Mm-hmm. I met him when he moved to Woodstock right after he left Springsteen. Wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the band. And, and um, without saying any and you can't say enough about his his playing mm-hmm. and as a friend he's been a brother to me for like a really long time we've mm-hmm. been through a lot of stuff together we've traveled the world together for years and in between all of the big major major stuff he's done sting seal right. gabriel clapton and all of that stuff he's always found time for our projects yes, and cool. um i've always been very grateful for that because um you know because of the remarkable talent that he is and i feel that he's added a tremendous amount of class and dignity to my music mm-hmm. larry hoppen same thing um longtime friend lead singer for orleans yeah. guitar player keyboard player extraordinaire um we've worked together in and out when john hall was in and out of orleans i sort of subbed in a way in it for him and really became synonymous with orleans for a long long time even though i wasn't a band member yeah um and larry and i have been same thing, Woodstock Connection. Like yeah. everybody in the band, we all met in Woodstock a long, long time ago, maintained contact and friendships, and um, and I admire uh, each and every one of them. But Larry is uh, extraordinary, you know, he's an extraordinary singer mm-hmm. and instrumentalist. Yeah. And you also had Leslie Smith on vocals. Baddest dude, you know, <laughs> best kept secret in the world. Yeah. Could be and could have been anything in the world if the world was fair. You know, he's <laughs> wow. he's He's ten times the singer that I'll ever be, and he uh, and I feature him in the show, and he and he slays the audience when he does his his feature, and um, he's amazing, and wow. his percussion playing has really come along, mm-hmm. and I idolize him, you know, and I simply stated that um, to have him sort of playing support to me in a band is just a tremendous thrill. Wow. Yeah, I, I encourage our audience that as they maybe listen uh, uh, to this interview that maybe you hop on. Uh, uh, Robbie's uh, website. There's um, photographs that you can actually see pictures while we were talking about this, right? <laughs> right, right. So, pictures uh, of the band, yeah. in Tokyo and Paris, exactly. and um, different stuff, you know. And like, also, if you're really into hearing somebody who's fantastic, just if you can find it, there's a record called Heartbreak mm-hmm. that um, was done by Leslie Smith on Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. And you know, some kick, some copies kick around and. You know, I know people share files and stuff, you know, yeah. but it's it's a it's a dynamite record and you get to hear sort of um one of the one of the best singers of his of his type, you yeah. know, ever. Right. And um lots of people. I mean he's got such a long history with Ricky Lee Jones and mm-hmm. Sergio Mendez and Bobby Caldwell and yeah. like on and on and on. Anybody who hears him wants to use him. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Heavy hitter here from Nashville, uh Rick, uh yeah, Rick. Rick was the bass player and one of the people that was the uh, the glue for the band Kraken when I met them. He was from yeah. Omaha, Nebraska, and he moved here in that wave in the early '70s. And then and now is my favorite bass player yeah. um, for my music. Mm-hmm. You know, I have good friends like Tony Levin, who's played with me before, sure. who's like totally outstanding. Yeah, but for my stuff, there's nobody like Rick. Yeah. And um, and and uh, we're very very close and have been forever, and um, and I I feel like um, when he plays like on the record he just he just plays such a beautiful he has such a beautiful feel and he never steps out but it's always like so solid and yeah. incredible you know yeah. yeah and then of course there was uh, Peter Benetta on drums yeah, right and there's my brother you know Peter um, 
we've been we've been friends like that. Met the same way. He came to Woodstock to play with Martha Velez, and wound up following Kraken out to California and becoming their drummer. Yeah. And um, he's a ball of energy, and he's the guy who you want to be with you in any situation, you know. And a great drummer. Again, not a guy who people know as much as a drummer because um, his thing was production. You know, they did a lot of producing, and he got known in that field much more. But I go out of my way to, you know, when I put this band together like almost six years ago, it's not the most convenient band because people live so far apart. Right, yeah. But Rick and Peter together as the rhythm section, there's a thing that happens there that's just like perfect for me. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. I want to talk about just uh, real quickly um, on the track uh, wrapped around your, your finger, which is your first track. And song in a track called, called "Lucky." They seem to be, after listening listening to those pretty pretty deeply. I mean, you you involve an awful lot of jazz chordings and and uh, they're sort of keyboard driven. And I know that uh, I'm leading to to this question. You know, with Bill and David at at the keyboards, how did you split the duties between you know in in the studio and the touring? Well, Bill, did, Bill didn't play on this album. Ah, okay, that's right. Labanti, no, Labanti didn't play on this album. Okay, just he, he was just touring with you. He but, was just. Gotcha. Yeah, oh, okay. But David did all the keyboards on this. Yeah, show. he came out as gotcha. a special guest. Okay. Um, David exclusively plays all the keyboards. Yeah. Okay. Well, that that explains the the chordings, and, and maybe you can talk about that. Does was he involved? Did he bring that uh, the jazz chords and the just the really neat 100%. progressions, a neat yeah. progressions. One hundred percent. Because what I, here's what happens when we when we get together here at my house. He comes in, and I've written a. Um, the fundamental bass lick is mine. Gotcha. Because I begin songs on bass. That's okay. how it always starts for me. Hmm. And so the fundamental thing is the bass and a simple drum loop. I don't spend time really like meticulously programming because I'm not going to be using it. Right. it. It really just becomes like a loop to work with. It sets up a tempo and a kind of a thing. It might just be conga drums. It might be just a kick drum and snare. You know, But whatever it is, it's just to start this feeling off. And then I'll play, like, some very elementary kind of chords on guitar to show them, like, where I'm imagining something to go. And then we sit down, and then David plays at the keyboard, and he is completely responsible for coloring the, uh, the voicings, you yeah. know. So, so, like, I, my contribution to the music is I come up with the nucleus of it, and David gives it the style yeah. uh -huh. and then and then you know i'm involved in like arranging the stuff you know i mean he pretty much leaves me alone with it once he once he does his thing you know mm -hmm. and um and then i pretty much arrange it and since these songs aren't written yet in this demo stage at home i wind up having to do some editing because this now becomes the chorus and this now becomes the bridge do you know what i'm saying yeah yeah so so, you know, it's not always like that when, when he hears it at first, but, but at the end, it's formed into a song. And then when we go into the studio, they've heard my kind of, again, rudimentary demo. I don't want to do too much with it, but they at least know where all the sections fall. And then mm -hmm. they just play like it was written on paper. Exactly. Well, I appreciate what you're saying about uh, David, you know, creating the... Or you said uh, how he colors. That's right. Uh, and, and, and you know, if you take a look at it, the patches that he's using for the background as opposed to his lead piano accents, I mean, you're right. It is, it is coloring. And I noticed that uh, quite a bit, even on Lucky, which is one of my favorite tracks. It's, uh, cool. Um, I, I wanted to mention one thing. The thing I love about your, your, your project is that every song is practically four, four minutes or longer. There's some that are even five and a half minutes. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and you know, whenever I see that, I'm, I'm already I'm thinking, man, there's some going to be some good music because you don't you don't find songs that are four minutes and five and a half minutes unless you're doing some serious uh, arranging of music, you know. Well, you know, I mean, the way I felt about it is, it's the song's not over until the, the idea is over, yeah. you know, until you've like I don't how I judge how long the song is if if I'm getting bored with it, then then it's too long, you know. But on these things, I mean, I'm I'm trying to be objective because it's me, you know. I mean, it's hard to be objective, but in my opinion about it, they don't feel long. And um, they, they, they're longer than maybe the average, you know, pop song or something, but they don't feel long to me when I listen, when mm -hmm. I listen back to them. You're right, mm -hmm. yeah. And, they, and, they, and that's because of the kind of things that go on in the performance and the lyric and the, 
and the elements that exist in there. You know, there's no there's no gadgets, you know, or gimmicks. But I mean, you you kind of look forward to what's going to be the next thing, and that's the idea about the production. Right. You know, the idea was to to um, make it a performance, and when people are performing, there's always something interesting in it. That's live. Mm-hmm. See, that's live. There's no there's no like let's do the bass over. Yeah, that's, right. That's the way it went down. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no time for anything else. That's right. what we did. You had a couple of takes, and like I said, once the takes were done, you dumped it in, and then you erased the tape. Right. So there you go. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the way it happened. Right. So there were tracks that were longer, and they got, you know, we were all sitting on the on the playbacks, and, like, there were things that went on, you know, for ages, and we would just say, like, do we dare? You know, and everybody <laughs> <laughs> No, it, not, not one song seems overly lengthy. If it, it, Like you said, it is what it is, you know? Right, well, someday... There's um, someday there'll probably be like some little collectible that I'll put out that'll have all of the all of the long versions. <laughs> that, oh yeah, that would be cool. Where it got yeah. really out, you know, at the yeah. end, you know, and just for just for fun, you know. Yeah, really and definitely. then there were songs like Judgment Day, you know, right. which was a uh-huh. song that it's the longest song on the record. It's the last song on the record. It's the moodiest, deepest piece on the record, you know, and all of that, and. Um, and it was a very big challenge. I mean, it's like that kind of a song was a challenge, you know, just uh-huh. to, emotionally to put that song out and to and to um, have them play so sensitively to a song that you've got to remember that there weren't any words when they recorded those things. Yeah. Right. So the feel that they had for those things, based on just me talking to them and saying, like, I'm talking to you, saying, this is a song about my father. It's called Judgment Day. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of basic melody it's going to be. And so when, when it was tracking and all of that, I was just like emoting in the microphone, and they were playing so incredibly so that when I was able to write the lyrics for it, I was able to match their inflections, you know, to, yeah, sure. to work my way in and out. Like I was the overdub. Yeah, that's true. That's an interesting point. That's Very an interesting neat. way of Very approaching cool. that. Yeah. Let's pause here for a few more minutes and uh, take a break and listen to another track from Robbie's latest album entitled Time and Tide. This is a song called Wrapped Around Your Finger. a sample of Wrapped Around Your Finger from today's guest, Robbie Dupree. Uh, you know, we've talked so much about Time and Tide, and, and I wanted to uh, 
you know, just for everyone listening out there who's interested in picking it up, where Absolutely. can they pick it up? Can they go to your website or is it? Yeah, there's a couple of ways to get it. It mm-hmm. is um, available on RobbieDupree.com. Okay. There's a store page there, a shop page that mm-hmm. you can get it from. Okay. It's downloadable, the whole album, on iTunes. Right. Um, I guess I kind of prefer when people get the actual product, you know, instead of like, you know, MP3s. You yeah, know, right, but, right. But that's just a personal choice. <laughs> um, and it is also now in distribution in America on a company called Burnside. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they're a good little distribution company, and they are putting it in selected stores. I don't think you'll find it in, like, uh, malls or anything like that, sure, but right, I think right. you'll find it in some Barnes and Nobles and yeah. th- things like that, you know. Good, and, good. Um, and so there's a bunch of ways to get a hold of it. And then overseas, for the fans that are listening, I mean, the podcast goes everywhere. Sure, yeah. So um, to fans that are listening overseas, Scandinavia, right. Zinc Music, um, it's also now released in uh, Great Britain, it's released in Japan on Music Air. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's pretty much throughout the world. You can find it somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you go to the websites in your particular territory, um, you, you'll, you'll be able to track it down, you know. That's great. And uh, do you have any uh, uh, upcoming tour plans? Looks like, you know, David's been away on the Zucaro tour mm-hmm. for a long time, and David's coming, coming home. We're going to play August 23rd here in Woodstock at the Bearsville okay. Theater. Yeah. Oh, cool which is a very great venue for us. We love to play there. And uh-huh. um, we're going to do that. And our plans are for early '09 to go back to Japan. And um, we're trying to put together some kind of a tour. The difficulty here is is that it's really hard to bring this band into yeah. the right kind of venues. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like, we, we don't, you know, we don't play bars, you know. So the thing is, we have to play clubs that, I would say most resemble like jazz clubs, yeah, right. Um, places where there are tables and seating and nice PA systems and stuff, because there is a certain amount of production involved in it, and mm-hmm. um, it is like that. So it's a little harder to set up a tour. I'm trying to work with an agency right now to do that kind of a thing, and I think that '09 is going to be a year for more and more of the touring um, West Coast stuff, which we haven't done in forever mm-hmm. and um you know and we're just trying but it's so hard to to get you know to get out there and to get promoted you know and right. I, the record the record is the key you mm-hmm. know the more people that are into the record the more demand there is the more people that are interested i even have a thing on my website that asks people like if you have a venue in your area that you think is really hip let us know and we'll get people to get in touch with them and yeah. see if we can that's, put it together you know wow but, that's cool but it's a certain kind of a venue right. that you really need for a band like this because it's a it's a, it's a concert. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. it's a, it's just like we play the whole album for the first part of the show, and then there's an intermission, and then we play all the old stuff and and favorite stuff of ours, and we stretch out features for Larry where he does dance with me from Orleans. Sure. And oh, Leslie cool. does Leslie does. Stuff like Fragile, you know, by mm-hmm. Sting. Oh, yeah. So, you know, so the show is really terrific, but it requires, you know, what we need is a booker that, that feels it, you know. Yeah, exactly, one, right. You know, if they do and they understand it, then this would be a, a great act for them to put out there, you know. We're yeah, trying. definitely. Well, we definitely want to keep in touch with you so we can find out what's happening with yeah, you down the road. And exactly. we, we can certainly tell all the listeners of our podcast where you are and what you're up to. And uh, so definitely let's stay in touch. And uh, just one more question quickly. What are the, in the meantime, what other kind of projects are you working on? I'm work, I work on, like I said, I'm going to be doing work on Bill Labounty's project. That's oh, that's one right. thing that's coming up in September. Okay. And then I have other venues of performance, like uh-huh. Larry Hoppin and I and a percussionist named Manuel Quintana mm-hmm. do this small trio thing that we do, which is really fun and easy to do. And and it keeps us, like, in shape, you know what I mean? And we go out and right. do, like, some little festivals and things like that. And we, we're on our way to um, a thing called Music Fair in, uh, no, Music Fest in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania on Thursday. Yeah. And then Friday we go to Bermuda, and we play in Bermuda cool. um, for, for a couple of days. Yeah. And, and so that kind of keeps me busy. And then from time to time I do a thing called Rock and Pop Masters, uh-huh. which is... Um, a number of singers that perform with one band. Okay. And um, that's fun. You know, oh, yeah. That, that's a cool thing, and it pays the rent. Very cool. 
Well, Robbie, thanks so much for joining us on Inside Music Cast. We what really a, appreciate what your time. A really- Great time to talk to guys who really care about music. You know? uh, we love the album, and, and seriously, it's uh, it's growing on both of us. We we both uh, were talking about just before the interview how much we're appreciating all the, the all the time and effort that you pour into this. And it, this is real music. This is the real stuff. This is what this is all about. So we really encourage uh, our audience. Who a lot of them are musicians and purists and aficionados. They can appreciate their work, and and uh, we just thank you for hanging in there and uh, producing uh, and giving us this uh, this great CD to to listen. To, okay. Thank you, and I'm going to keep doing it as long as I can. Yeah. Please do. Sounds great. <laughs> Take care, right. and thanks for being with us. Thanks, thanks Robbie. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Robbie Dupree for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new episode of Inside Music Cast every other week. Be sure to check out InsideMusicCast.com for continuing updates, including our People's Forum, where you can chat about all things music with Inside Music Cast listeners from around the world. That's InsideMusicCast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com. 